Hello and welcome to Pioneering People. I'm Morvan McIntyre and this is a podcast series where we will talk to some of the most innovative entrepreneurs, people who have paved their own way and become pioneers in their industry. This week our guest is Ray Bug, an entrepreneur who founded Digit in 2013. But I think a lot of businesses aren't mindful of, of how they communicate, how often they communicate, how well they communicate, and then wonder where the data's gone. We're, we're very mindful of that, and we try and tailor our approach to communication. So, so data, I think, privacy is one side of data. I think usage and, and, and how you get the most of your data is another. Digit is Scotland's largest stakeholder industry news site, focusing on ICT and technology. Digit also organises Scotland's largest enterprise IT and digital events, covering topics on big data, cloud computing and cybersecurity, among other things. Prior to finding Digit, Ray had a career working in the publishing and media sector for Camden Publishing and the World Youth Congress. He was also the lead for digital policy at Hollywood Connect ICT Media and Events. Today I'll be talking to Ray about why he believes in a share culture and the importance of using data when communicating with customers. We'll also hear about why Ray feels it's important to be sceptical about digital media in an era of fake news. All of that still to come. But first, this episode is brought to you in association with JPI Media Local. If you run a local business or startup, and want to get your message out to potential customers, JPI Media Local can help. Through their network of online and print news brands across the UK, JPI Media Local have helped thousands of businesses put their ads in front of the right people in the right place with the right message. To start making lasting connections with local customers, visit jpimedialocal.co.uk or call 0207 and speak to a local marketing expert today. Now, on with the show. So today in the studio, I'm pleased to say that we have Ray Bug. Uh, welcome, Ray. Morning. So, Ray, you left Thurstable School in 1986, which is a school in Essex, for those who don't know. Mm. What were your aspirations at that time? I probably didn't have any. I, I came from a small village in Essex where people... <sighs> not to be too unkind to, to the people of Essex, but certainly where I came from, people tended to stay there. Uh, it, it wasn't a place where you heard many tales of, of travels and entrepreneurship and, and, and such like. But then again, that was sort of in the mid 80s. So I, I left school with very, very little aspiration of what I was going to do. I enjoyed working in catering. So I was doing waitering and, and pretty soon after leaving school, I actually packed my bags in and went to London. Uh, to sort of seek my fortune there, sort of a bit of a Dick Whittington situation. Uh, and worked for some of the major hotel groups up there, decided that you know, the hotel industry was something that I wanted to work in and, and probably did that for a, a good five or six years after leaving school, but then decided that there was a monotony to working in catering and, and something else had to be done. And did you know then after kind of working in catering that you maybe wanted to venture into the media sector? No, that happened completely by accident. It was one of these situations where I decided I had enough of working in, in the hotel industry and, and then thought to myself, yeah, what, what can I try? So back in the day, you know, you didn't go online to look for a job. You, you opened the evening standard, looked in the job section, made a phone call. 
probably had half your interview over the phone with whoever you were talking to. Then if they liked you, you'd, you'd go in and have further chat. And it just so happened that a, a publishers that um, I'd, I'd taken a fancy to uh, invited me in, got me to do a pitch over the phone there and then to try and sell advertising in in a yearbook, which was talking about, I think the name of the book was called Painting, Painting and Coatings Agenda, South America. So it was talking about raw materials for, for that particular industry, polymers and resins and stuff like that. So it's a complete shape shift from sort of sticking someone's dinner in front of them. But I liked it. I liked the challenge that it brought. The earning opportunity was very, very high, in particular with a low paying industry like catering. And it fundamentally was quite interesting as well. Um, so I progressed from from working on polymers, resins and painting and, and stuff like that. And then went into healthcare. That was hugely interesting. We, we did books around European healthcare, Royal College of General Practitioners. So primary and secondary healthcare. Uh, and and. I always had an interest in the topic that I was selling. I think that anybody who sells something has to have a knowledge of what they're selling. Um, so, so I think that sort of led on very much to what I'm doing now, but certainly was, I think, the foundations for, for, for where I am now. And you talked about kind of being involved in publishing of books mm. in, in health. Was that at the time that you, in 1996, when you joined Camden Publishing, was mm-hmm. that all with them? Yes, that was with them. Um, they, they really did sort of give me the foundations for, for where I am now. I went from, catering is a very unstructured, an unstructured industry. You know, it's, it's a very simple approach to what you do. Whereas at Camden, they were also facing their own challenges at that time because I went into the what was the print media industry at a time when we were just starting to evolve into digital. And there was always that conundrum as to whether or not we, we just published and worked online. I think back in that transition between print and digital, when digital was just starting to come in, the internet was just starting to become a mainstream thing. The challenge, I think, for the publishing industry then was you're going to have to do both. Um, we didn't. And you could slowly see back then, you know, 20, 16 years ago, more than that, in fact, sorry, 20, 24 years mm-hmm. ago, you could actually start seeing the demise of print. Uh, it's been a very, very slow burn. I think we're sort of, you know, getting to a point now where we know it's not going to go get any bigger than it is. But but certainly then we were sort of toying with the idea of, of to, to, to go online with the offering. But then again, it was everything was subscriber based back in the day. And also... You talked a lot about how there was more kind of career opportunities within publishing at that time. And mm. and it was must have been completely different now. We've got, like you were saying, the decline of print. But back then, I can imagine it was a very lucrative industry. Like you were saying, a lot of people were uh, buying print. And what was that like then back in the 1990s publishing? Not being a publisher in the pure sense back in the 90s as I am now, I, I was just a foot soldier in, in respect. But I think what you could see then was... The sales opportunities that came from the role that I was doing, I, I, I ended up heading up a team of 10 staff and we published a, a complete suite of publications for, for the business. And I think between four or five publications, we were turning over two and a half million pounds a year. And these weren't periodical publications. These were annual publications. One of the publications on its own would turn over a million pounds a year, just one big book which was sort of one page advert, one page editorial, one page advert, one page editorial. Because that's how information was shared back in those days in industry publications. But I, I certainly found that opportunities were there because you needed so many people to produce the product. You needed designers, you needed editors, you needed layout staff, you needed researchers, you needed sales staff, you needed journalism. 
um, that you know it was a, it was a huge team effort to to produce something that, that at the end of the day couldn't be wrong. That's the thing about print. Once it's out, it's out. So, so a huge effort went into doing what we did. And yes, there was a lot of people working in the industry, particularly in the sales side of it, because everything was propped up by advertising. And you then worked in production and media for the World Youth Congress. Yeah. And for those who don't know, what does that event involve? And can you explain what your role was? Yeah, that was that was uh, possibly one of the best things I've ever worked on. Completely by accident, I'd moved to Edinburgh. Um, I wanted to find a job. And somebody said to me, go and work for this particular agency, which was called Barkers. They're, they're not around anymore, unfortunately. And they specialised in, in above and below the line marketing. They were the incumbents of the Scottish government. They created campaigns like Know the Score, which is, is still, you know, the, the, the current drugs campaign. Uh, beautiful Scotland, fairer Scotland, and and all the, and, and segmented the, the sort of social marketing side of, of government activity out to the wider public. And I, I did some initial research work for them, not not my speciality, but but quite simple to do. Uh, and that contract was coming to an end, and they said, "Look, you know, we've got a secondment that we'd be interested in giving you because you've worked in events. Because part of what I did at Camden was then going to the event side in healthcare as well." And they said, would you like to, to help produce the World Youth Congress? And, and it just sounded like a small event. It sounded like a one, two day event. It wasn't. It was actually huge. Um, it was a two day residential conference. Uh, it was at Stirling University. It involved a thousand young people from 120 different countries. Prince Charles was part of it. Kofi Annan at the time, the Secretary General of the UN, was involved. Uh, Scottish government underwrote it to the tune, I think, of two and a half million pounds. Uh, so, so it was a big, big, big project. And, and my role was to do the, the, all the stage production, uh, the media, the PR, uh, the sponsorship. It was a two-year secondment to produce one event uh, and really sort of gave me the flavour for events thereafter. You could certainly see the value in engagement, the value in people meeting, uh, talking about issues which this particular event did. It talked about the Millennium Development Goals. And, and also, it also taught me that these things need a strong legacy. So at the other end, when everybody waves bye-bye and goes back to where they are, you need something, you know, some outcomes from what you've done. Uh, and we produced books, we produced uh, interactive DVDs, and, and, and they went around the world. Uh, and, and it was an amazing thing to work on. And after that, you were then um, started working at Hollywood Connect ICT Media and Events, mm -hmm. and eventually you ended up being the lead there. So what did your role involve there? Well, at the time of joining Hollywood, we, that was at the same time as, as the, the sort of curtain coming down on government spending money willy-nilly. It was the days of austerity. The banks had collapsed. That teetering effect down through other industries, including government, you know, felt the knock-on and government certainly had to start looking at how it spent its money. At that time, government was was very focused on using single suppliers for major projects. Uh, and, and at that time, we seen a number of failures costing billions of pounds to the government on, on putting all their eggs in one basket, the one supplier to do a major transformational shift, um, particularly with technology. And government then decided, well, hang on, we need to do multi-supplier frameworks. We need to be more diligent. We need to buy more carefully. Uh, we need to really sort of you know look at how money is being spent. Whereas before, government weren't that conscious of, of how they were spending money. 
so part of what I did for Holyrood and Holyrood to give you a bit of background, produce uh, a periodical publication talking about government policy at local and central level, uh, headed up by an, an amazing woman called Mandy Rhodes. And as part of the other side of the business, they did a number of policy conferences and that could be anything from child protection to uh, new bills that were coming through. We did, you know, a smoking conference. Uh, but when the, when the smoking, not the smoking ban, but the, the restrictions on packaging and, and it was called the primary medical services bill. So, so we would do major stakeholder events in line with you know, certain policy shifts, but also you know, regular events as well. But, but where I specialised and, and where I sort of found my, my, my place at Holyrood was, it was government transformation and how technology underpins government transformation. And there's a number of facets to that, things like health and social care integration. Yes, that's a policy shift, but technology underpins that massively. Things like telehealth, telecare, e-health. So, so I would do the stakeholder conferences around that, around policing and how technology is, is shaping policing in Scotland, certainly with the eight forces becoming one central force that had a major technology requirement. We did events around cloud computing, cybersecurity, and, and built our own brand called Holyrood Connect, which looked at how government at both local and central level transforms and how technology underpins that process. And a lot of your role there, as you were mentioning, underpinned a lot of things like ICT and digital transformation. Is that right? And then you also organized conferences and you started running an ICT publication. Is this where you got the initial idea for Digit then? Very, very much so. I mean, it, to, not, to, not to denigrate Holyrood too much. The idea of Digit was pitched to them. So, so I approached the CEO of that, uh, who, who was uh, running the business at the time. And I said, look, I said, look, Holyrood have got this amazing product. We're, we're satisfying the communications needs and we're supplying this amazing information tool to, to, to government. Why don't we do the same thing for enterprise? Nobody's doing that in Scotland. You know, we've got huge industries like oil and gas. We've got financial services. We've got a massive SME sector, mid-market sector, and nobody is producing events or news for this particular body of people. And they actually represent nine billion pounds worth of spend in Scotland. It's a massive industry. Why don't we do it? And and to be fair to Holyrood, you know, it's it's a public sector focused organisation. The parent company is also a public sector focused uh, organisation. I think it was just too much of a shape shift to go into an enterprise market, which they'd never done. So, so that was knocked back. And it was an idea that I didn't want to sort of just to leave on the sidelines. So, so I, I, rather than sort of going to a bank and, and trying to finance the idea myself and get it off the ground, I just spoke to clients and said, look, I'm going to leave and I'm going to do enterprise events now. Where do you want me to go? And everybody said, go to Aberdeen. Nobody does IT conferences in Aberdeen. They, they're all in London, even though you know, the core of the, the, the UK oil and gas sector is in Aberdeen. Everybody has to go to London to an IT event. I said, OK, I'll take it to Aberdeen. And they all gave me the, the sort of seed funding to, to get the business started. So I didn't need a bank. I didn't need the bank of mum and dad. I didn't need the Royal Bank of Scotland. I didn't need to go to investors. These people who are currently working with, as soon as I left Holyrood, gave me the money to start the business, not for any shareholding, just to support the first event I did. And that gave me six months running costs as well. Um, and the first event was huge. Uh, it was a huge success. And that, that sort of paved the way for, right, OK, we're, we're doing something right here. There's clearly an appetite for this type of engagement in Scotland. What else can we do? Uh, and here we are now, six years down the line, you know, we, we've got 10 staff We've got a team of journalists. We're publishing a website that gets 
around 120,000 hits a month. And our events now have anywhere between 300 and 2,000 people coming to each one. And you've kind of touched on this already, but if you were to explain in simple terms, what does Digit do and who are its customers? Digit basically is a media and events company um, satisfying, hopefully, the, the requirement of the technology industry. And when I say the technology industry, we're more focused on the people who consume technology in industry, uh, as well as those who provide that, that, that technology and service as well. So, so our core audience, uh, and, and looking at the events first, our events are predominantly attended by CIOs, IT directors, heads of digital, departmental IT leads, you know, heads of architecture, heads of network, heads of infrastructure, heads of digital. Uh, and these are people who are charged in one form or another with transforming their business, making their business more agile, making it more competitive, making process run smoother. And we do a, a whole smorgasbord of events. I think there's eight events confirmed for 2020. And in addition to that, we also re realized by doing the events initially, there was a big, a big appetite for business to be kept up to speed with what's going on in their sector. So we went online. Uh, Digit.fyi was launched in February 2017. And in the three years that's been running, uh, we've gone from a standing start to, to 1.4 million hits last year. So you mentioned earlier talking about how the way you set up Digit was quite unusual. You had people coming to you who liked your idea, your clients that you worked with at Hollywood, yeah. and you then kind of didn't have to go to a bank for a loan or seek out investment. You kind of had running costs, as you said, for yeah. six months. So yeah. What was then the process of scaling up the business and did you encounter any challenges along the way? Yeah, there's, there's always challenges with running a business. I think anybody who's, who's had a business as long as I have, which is, you know, we're in year six, can say that, it, you know, it's been a ride with no bumps. I think from going to a commercial role into a business ownership role, I think the biggest challenge for me was learning about all the facets of owning and running a business. You're not just there to do what you did previously and that's sell a product. You're there to create the product, to look after the logistics, to make sure the VAT is paid on time, the wages is paid on time, to make sure your cash flow is, is on point, to, to look at forecasting and projections. There's a there's hundred other things. That are bit, and I mean, design websites, produce websites. I mean, we were working on quite low yield initially, so I did everything. I turned into a generalist and, and learned things that I'd never done before. And rather than outsourcing these things to, to great expenditure, I just worked harder and did it myself. Created a culture, I think, which was quite hard to shift once I did have the resource to then let other people do it, because it's quite hard to let go of things that you've been doing yourself for so long. I think you've got to enjoy yourself when you do these things. I think if, if running a business becomes too tasking for you, you're not going to enjoy it and it's not going to do as well as it can do. I loved everything you know, about learning these new things. I, I enjoyed sitting at home and designing a website, overcoming you know, all the different barriers of, of layout and mobile optimization of my site and stuff like that. I did it myself. But at the same time, you know, maintain revenue streams, look at how you're building the business and try and scale while you're doing this, this sort of bootstrap environment, because we were bootstrapped probably for the first three or four years. It's only in the last year or so that where we've departmentalized our business and got single people doing single roles as opposed to different people doing three or four different roles, which you do in the bootstrap environment. So we're now segmented into a marketing department, an events department, a research department, an editorial department, and a commercial department. Major elements of any publishing business, uh, which relies on advertising, would sort of be in that sort of format. We've only just got there. 
but we've also self-funded our scale. So over the over the whole course of our journey of growth, we, we haven't gone to the bank for any money. We haven't gone to investors. We're still wholly owned internally. Uh, I think that's given us a lot more freedom. It's allowed us to scale at our own pace. I think we've been very fortunate in not having a huge amount of competition knocking on the door and, and trying to take market share away from us. And I think that's allowed us that slower burn in terms of growth instead of that, that accelerated scale, which with it brings inherent risk. And you mentioned your company culture there and doing a lot of things initially by yourself. What sort of culture do you aim to create then within your company? I want people to create. I don't want to micromanage people. I don't like micromanaging. I never liked being micromanaging. So coming from a sales background, you constantly micromanage, you know, KPIs, how many calls have you made? You know, what do you think you're going to be putting on this month? Is it, There's this constant barrage of, of questions, which in essence turns into micromanagement. For me, I want people to work autonomously. I want a culture where everybody can talk to each other. I want my staff to be part of our growth. We, we meet regularly. We've just taken somebody on. Her name's Lola. She's amazing. Uh, and what she's doing is actually helping us to create our company culture. Uh, company culture is normally done off the back of a fag packet when you're you know, a, a, a business of my size. But now what we've got is somebody who's, who's built a culture somewhere else and is bringing that blueprint into us. And, and you know, we're using Microsoft Teams now. We never used Microsoft Teams. Everybody would email or jump up and go into the office next door and talk to each other. But now we've got Teams. And, and using Teams, for example, allows us to have more communication and, and involve more people in decision making. And the staff are as much decision makers in, in how this business evolves as much as I am. I'm very reliant on their ideas. I very much want to embed the culture that my team are here to grow the business with me as opposed to me just saying, this is what we're doing, guys, you know, deliver it. Their opinion on process uh, their opinion on product, uh, their opinion on growth is, is as important as mine. Um, so you'll know firsthand from working in the media industry that there has been a decline in print. We talked about that before, how yeah. publishing was once, like you said, required a lot of people. So people aren't buying print as much and subsequently budgets have uh, been squeezed. Yeah. So do you think this idea for Digit where you've got everything online and there's a real digital transformation, do you think that's where that idea kind of came from? I never considered print uh, and I never gave print a thought across the business, not just, you know, how we publish. And I'll give an example. When we do events, you, you go to some conferences, you get given this handbook, then you get given leaflets within the handbook and stuff like that. And it's something that just gets thrown away. It's so wasteful. We've used an app. Uh, the first conference we did, we used a booklet. It was a pain in the backside to do because one of our speakers cancelled a couple of days beforehand. We brought in a replacement, but the first speaker who cancelled was the person in the handbooks. We got in a print, couldn't do anything, couldn't change it. Uh, and the amount of work and expense that goes into producing this handbook, which only 200 people are going to use, and costs £1,500 to produce. You know, it, that's actually cost me, what, £37.50 per person, maybe more actually sorry, £75 per person to produce an eight-page booklet. Uh, completely wasteful. So we very much looked for, for an idea on how we could become paperless as a business. And now when we produce a conference, we don't use paper. We haven't used paper now for 50 events. So when people come to our events now, they log on to, to, the, to the app on their phone and they can do more on that than they could have done with that booklet that the, the conference providers are still using today. I think it's absolutely ridiculous that they're still doing it. But as, as far as print media is concerned, don't get me wrong, I'd much rather read a book than pick up a Kindle. That, that may be generational. But at the same time, you know, we're seeing vinyl making a comeback. You know, there's been more vinyl sold last year than there was 10 years ago. 
So maybe retro is chic. Uh, maybe we will see print making a, a comeback, but I don't think it's a long-term comeback. I think it's just a, a bit of a sort of retro uh, resurgence rather than something that we'll, we'll see growing long-term. I think print is dead. And a lot of the articles that you've written are about data privacy as well. Mm-hmm. And is that a threat to your business? And if so, how do you negate any kind of privacy concerns online? And what tips do you give to people? Because your business is all online. Yeah, yeah. So that must be kind of something that you have to manage that risk. It's a threat to every business. It doesn't matter if you're a plumber. It doesn't matter if you're the Scotsman. It doesn't matter if you're digit. It doesn't matter if you're government or a bank. Every business has has got to be data savvy. We saw new regulations coming into force in May 2018, the the, the GDPR. We do the event around GDPR. Uh, We work very close with the ICO to to bring together the stakeholders. So we're very well versed on on compliance, on the regulations, how that might shape uh, following Brexit, if we're going to keep the regulations, if we're going to introduce new ones. But fundamentally for every business, data privacy and, and data protection, I'd describe it more so as than privacy. I think it's protection. You have to protect the data that you hold and you have to use that data in a meaningful and compliant manner. I think that what we do at Digit is we use cloud-based software. We look at the secure aspects of that. We're just undertaking our cyber qualifications so we can actually be certified as, 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 a, as a cyber savvy business. We've just received a grant to do that from Scottish Enterprise. And we have internal processes where we segment who can handle what data. We're registered with the ICO as well as a business. Everybody who handles data should be registered with the ICO. Hopefully a few people listen to this podcast and be going, oh, do you? Yes, you do. Any business that handles data should be registered with the Information Commissioner's Office. We have been since we started. So, so we follow due diligence. We have a lot of data. We have the data of getting on for 10,000 people who work within the IT and digital sector. Uh, we have to be mindful of that. We have to use it cleverly as well in the sense of you know, how often we communicate out with our data. So, so I think you have to, when you've got data, it's not just how you protect it. It's not how you, just how you store it. It's not just being compliant. I think data also is how you use that data. We send out a newsletter three days a week. We're very fortunate because we're sort of industry-based with what we do and we're not just sort of consumer-based with what we do. We hold most of our data. We keep it. Very few people unsubscribe. We get more bounces on our, on our data than we do unsubscribes in our data from people moving jobs and then those, those emails you know, effectively becoming obsolete. We then you know, cleanse it. But I think a lot of businesses aren't mindful of, of how they communicate, how often they communicate, how well they communicate, and then wonder where the data's gone. We're very mindful of that and we try and tailor our approach to communication. So, so data, I think, privacy is one side of data. I think usage and, and, and how you get the most of your data And from working in the media industry for such a long time, Mm -hmm. what do you think you've learned a lot along the way? Two ears, one mouth. Use them in that order. When I was just selling, I had to be selling. Um, I found that I became a better salesperson in the media industry by listening to what customers want as opposed to selling them what I thought they needed. That was a fundamental shift for me. And that very much came from researching my product, getting into it. So then I had an understanding of what the client might need, but also listening very carefully to what it is they had to say. Make as many friends as possible. 
I think in business, a lot of people think they have to put their arm around what they do. At Digit, we've always been about sharing. We've been very, very open source with what it is we do. We've involved a lot of people in our products. We're very much very open to stakeholder engagement as well. We've not just done it on our own. We've listened to the voice and the opinion of others to help shape what it is we do. We've involved others in what we do. We've given a lot of things away. But that's helped us to, to build a quality product. Maybe not so much a financially viable product, but certainly a quality product, which then turns to be, tends to be financially viable further down the line. And, and, and to put that into context, when we do a new event, and for example, our fintech conference, we've been doing our fintech summit now. This will be the seventh year we do our fintech summit. It runs over two days. We launched the awards last year, which was a massive success for us um, with over 300 people. The awards last year didn't make a lot of money. And the reason it didn't make a lot of money is because we wanted it to work. So, so we're prepared to take a hit financially to make sure that the product was sound and people enjoyed the experience. We then, next year, this year, we work out how we make it more financially viable. So we've been very sacrificial with what we've done to make sure that the, the consumers of our product enjoy it the first time they get to try it. Um, so whenever we launch something new, it's not about the money. It's about making sure the product is right. So what opportunities and challenges do you foresee occurring in the digital me media industry in the next 10 years? I think choice has is, is, is become an issue. Social media now, we have a variety of platforms. And certainly when it comes to marketing and doing digital marketing, it's a myriad of platforms you've now got to put your product on. And these platforms become more popular, less popular. So you know, where do you invest your time, your resource, your money? That for us isn't too much of a conundrum because we're very focused on what we do. We have a particular audience. But I think certainly on the consumer side, there's too much choice now. I think also, you know, with with digital media now and social media, what can you believe? Yeah, you know, that's maybe me getting a little bit political. But as a consumer now, we see adverts for this, we see adverts for that, and 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 there's a self self testimonial driven about how good these things are. And you order something online, and and I've done it, my wife has done it, gets delivered, and it's nothing like it said on the box. So for me, I'm becoming very untrusting towards digital media, to be brutally frank. I'm thinking about quitting Facebook. Uh, I don't see any value in it anymore. So, so I'm a very sceptical individual about digital media at the minute. I, I think that the digital media sector will grow exponentially just because of the way that the, the consumer at large consumes information now. But working within the industry, I'm a natural sceptic, as you can probably imagine. And what would you like to be doing in 10 years' time? Very little. Very, very little, in fact. No, that's not true. We, we've still got a lot of plans for Digit. There's other components we would like to add on to our existing portfolio. There's other industries we'd like to address with you know, technology events. There's other geographies that we'd like to enter into as well, and also other market segments that can be added on to what we do. So, so we're looking at a number of things. So I certainly think in the next 10 years, Digit will still be part of my life. Hopefully not as much as it is now. I'd certainly like to, to, to be more ambassadorial in what I do now than, than this sort of cut and thrust of how we run the business at the moment. And I'd like other people to come in and eventually take that away from myself. I'm also interested in startups. I think startups are hugely exciting. We see some absolutely terrible ones, but I think most of the time we see some really, really clever stuff happening. I'd like to be more supportive of startups. Digit already is very supportive of startups. We try and give them as much editorial space as we possibly can. 
particularly those that have received funding, put new products out where we're seeing growth. We're very positive in our out, in our output in terms of how we present startups in Scotland. It's a, it's a massively underreported sector, but you know, small acorns, great oaks. And we've seen companies like Skyscanner uh, exit uh, you know, 1.2 billion. We saw uh, FanDuel being valued at over a billion at one stage before it's unfortunate journey that it went on with its founders. But but there's more like that. I don't think we should be too unicorn crazy. I'd rather see 10 100 million pound companies being created in the tech sector than one billion pound sector. I think that's healthier. And I've just paraphrased a very good friend of mine there and, and, and nicked his line because that was something he said, but something I wholeheartedly agreed with. And, and as long as people are talking to each other, as long as they're sharing, and as long as we try and bring a bit more of the Silicon Valley mentality into Scotland, I think it's got a good chance of working. Well, thank you very much, Ray, for your time today. I think there's been some great insights and you sharing your knowledge and how uh, the media sector has evolved and also uh, some great insights into uh, the digital media industry and how you go about creating a culture of you know, sharing, as you were saying, and and wanting to um, support other businesses and working together. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Next week, our guest is entrepreneur Peter Orr. My kind of lesson was, if you're happy in your job, don't just move for money. It's like relationships. Sometimes they don't just work out in the way that you hope. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to visit jpimedialocal.co.uk or call 0207 0849134 to speak to a local marketing expert about how your business can make lasting connections with thousands of potential customers. You can download Pioneering People wherever you listen to your podcasts. But for exclusive, interactive, immersive content, download the Entail app for iOS and Android. If you like what you heard, please rate and review Pioneering People and help other listeners discover us too. This is a Laudable production. You can find out more about Laudable and its other local podcasts by following us on social media, on Twitter where we are at Laudable Pods and Instagram by searching for Laudable underscore podcasts.